All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23? If you're new with us, we're working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. As we just said, we are in chapter 23, which takes place about two days before the crucifixion. And at this point, as we pointed out before, the leaders in Israel are in full attack mode, looking for anything they can, uh, uh, can use against Jesus to have him arrested and crucified. Now, the Lord uses the opportunity to condemn the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, first of all to the multitudes in verses 1 to 12, but then after that he turns to them directly because they're standing there, and he begins to rebuke them to their face for their hypocrisy. In fact, seven times in this chapter he calls them hypocrites. And as we pointed out, that's a Greek word that was used of an actor up on stage playing a part. That's what, exactly what they were doing. They were playing a part. It was a big show. They acted the part of holy and pious men, but they were nothing more than hypocrites. And so, as we have pointed out, the chapter falls into two main parts. Jesus instructs the multitudes in verses 1 to 12, and then Jesus indicts the scribes and Pharisees in verses 13 to 36. Now, verses 37 to 39 form uh, basically an introduction to chapter 24, and so we'll study those verses next time as we begin looking at chapter 24. But last time we met, we looked at verses 13 to 24 uh, of this section where he is indicting now the scribes and the Pharisees. This morning, we want to finish this section by looking at verses 25 to 36. Now, remember once again that in this section, Jesus pronounces eight woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. And as we've already said, whenever in the Bible God pronounces a woe, that is always a term of judgment. You can read Isaiah 5, Revelation 8, 9, chapter 11, and 12. You will see every time God pronounces a woe, it's hooked to judgment. So he is really pronouncing judgment upon these men. But listen, not just these men, but all who are like them, who put all their emphasis on religious externals, but don't have a heart that's right with God. And our country is loaded with churchgoers who fit into that category. So this is much broader than the scribes and the Pharisees. And last time in our study, we looked at the first five of these pronouncements of judgment upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And that brings us this morning to the sixth woe, the sixth woe, which is found in verses 25 and 26, where Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence, blind Pharisee. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside may be clean also. You're thinking, well, why is the Lord talking about keeping a tidy kitchen? I mean, that doesn't seem like... You have to understand something, okay? You wouldn't get this from just a quick reading of what Jesus said here. But uh, uh, these verses touched on something that the scribes and Pharisees had, had debated at length. And that was, what constitutes a kosher kitchen? Historian and author William Barclay relates some of the rules and regulations the scribes and Pharisees came up with regarding clean and unclean kitchenware. Now, I'll read these to you, okay? Not that I think there's a lot of value in it, but I want you to see how meticulous they were about the small things, even with regard to their cups and saucers, and how blind they were to the big things, all right? But, but here's what Barclay, a historian, says that these guys came up with. He said, 
Uh, they said an earthen vessel, which is hollow, becomes unclean only on the inside and not on the outside. And it can only be cleansed by being broken. In other words, it, once it's unclean, it can't be used again, but you can cleanse it only by breaking it. All right? The following earthen vessels cannot become unclean at all. A flat plate without a rim. And let's see, write these down because this is good to know. Uh, an, an open coal shovel. A gridiron with holes in it for parching grains of wheat. On the other hand, they said a plate with a rim or an earthen spice box or a writing case can become unclean. A vessels made of leather, bone, wood, and glass. Flat ones do not become unclean. Deep ones do. If they are broken, they become clean. And Barclay, after he gives several more of these examples of what they came up with, he concludes by saying this. He said, the food or drink inside a vessel might have been obtained by cheating or extortion or theft, but that didn't matter, as long as the vessel itself was ceremonially clean. And that was the whole idea. They were only worried about the outward things, okay? Now, when Jesus challenged the scribes and Pharisees in verse 26 to first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside might be clean also, he was using their obsession against defiling themselves with unclean dishes and cups. He was using that against them. And here's what I believe the Lord was saying. Let me paraphrase what I believe he is saying. He's telling these guys, look, you're so worried about being defiled from the dishes and cups in your kitchen. I mean, you wouldn't think of eating from a, a, a dish or drinking from a cup that had only been cleaned on the outside, but the inside was still full of all kinds of gunk. And yet you live your lives that very way. You make sure to cleanse the outside of your lives with all your religious observances so that outwardly you look clean and righteous. But on the inside, you're defiled with sins like extortion and self-indulgence. First, cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that it might, and the idea is overflow and cleanse the outside also. I mean, so what Jesus said to these men, if you really want to be clean and undefiled in the sight of God, look, you got to start with the inside. You got to start with the inside. In other words, the heart. That's what he was really getting at here. You got to start with the heart. See, religion, guys, only surface cleanses a person. That's the, that's the problem with religion. It kind of cleans up a person on the outside, but it leaves the heart untouched. And God's always looking at the heart. And that was the problem, okay? These guys thought because outwardly they kept some rules and regulations and, and looked kind of holy and pious, that's all that they needed. When Jesus said, look, what God is really looking at is the inside. True righteousness begins on the inside of a person, in the heart. And once a person is righteous on the inside, through Jesus Christ, of course, the only way you can be righteous, it will work its way out into your outward life where you'll begin to see a holy life begin to be lived externally for God. It always, though, true righteousness starts in the heart and works its way out into a person's life. Now, let me just stop at this point and bring in the next woe in verses 27 and 8 because actually... In this next woe, Jesus is continuing the same thought from this previous one. So woe number seven, starting in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but instead are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Now, once again, Jesus is drawing from something that was only too familiar to the scribes and the Pharisees to illustrate the attention that they paid to the outside of their lives, the part that people saw, while neglecting completely the inside of their lives, their hearts, the part that God looked at. 
And Jesus did this by using the practice of whitewashing tombs around Jerusalem at Passover time. Now, this was something well known, and we've talked about it before, but if you're new with us, just let me explain this to you. There were seven feasts of Moses given to Israel. Of those seven, three were major ones. That was Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the early summer, and Tabernacles in the fall. Of those three, Passover was the main one of all of them. And many Jews who lived way outside Israel dreamed all their lives to save up enough money to make at least one pilgrimage to Jerusalem at Passover time. That was the dream of many Jews. It may have taken them 20 years to save up enough money to finally make that pilgrimage to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And you can imagine, because they didn't know the area, they were from out of town, as they were making their way to the city, if they inadvertently stepped on a tomb, well, they would be rendered unclean, defiled. And therefore, they could not keep the Passover. What a tragedy that would have been. So to keep that from happening and to be a courtesy to these travelers, uh, the Jewish people would go out and they would whitewash the tombs, or sometimes they would just paint uh, bones on them, on the tomb. And of course, they knew, the travelers knew that that was a, uh, a tomb. Jesus picks up on this practice and uses it against the scribes and the Pharisees in a very dramatic and graphic way. He says, you know how you guys are so meticulous, you go out there and even whitewash the tombs. Of course, on the outside, it makes the tomb look all clean and white and holy. But on the inside, it's still full of dead men's bones, corruption, uncleanness, defilement, etc. Jesus said, you know, you scribes and Pharisees, you're like that. On the outside of your life through your religion, you surface cleanse your life. You, you, you act all pious and holy and you keep the feasts and, and so you wear phylacteries and, and other shows of piety. But God sees the heart and on the inside of your heart, he sees there's corruption, there's defilement, there's unrighteousness, there's sin and so on. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 51 verse 6? God desires truth in the inward parts. And what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 verse 8 Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Of course, the reason Jesus likened the inside of the scribes and Pharisees to tombs that held the dead was because, listen, inwardly they were spiritually dead. They were spiritually dead. You know, Paul the Apostle gets into this. What Jesus mentions here quickly in in type, or as an illustration, Paul kind of elaborates on in Ephesians 2. Why don't you turn there? He's going to be talking in Ephesians 2 about our condition before Jesus came inside of our hearts to live as our Lord and Savior, what we were before, and then what we were now after. And Paul describes in detail, doctrinally, what the Lord is alluding to by this simple statement, that the scribes and Pharisees on the inside were like tombs. Why? Because they were dead inside. There was no spiritual life. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul said, And you were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now he's talking to the Ephesians, they're already saved, but he's talking about their lives before Christ. At one time he said, you guys, you were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, you were not alive to God. See, that's what it is, that's what an unbeliever is. They are alive physically, they have a body and a consciousness. Their spirit is dead. That's what died in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. That's what comes alive, by the way, once we receive Christ and we're born again, or we are born from above, born of the Spirit. Our spirit comes alive, and we are reconnected to God in a very special way. We have fellowship with Him now. 
But before that, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Adam, when he sinned and his spirit died, he passed that along, that death along to all of his descendants. In Adam, Paul said, all die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. And so Paul is saying at one time, you know, we were like uh, the unbelievers. We were dead in trespasses and sins, disconnected from God. Uh, verse 2, you once walked in these sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, at one time, we were just like dead fish floating downstream, is the idea. Dead in trespasses and sins. The devil was in control of this world system, and we were just being swept along by whatever he wanted, basically. Our lives were lived for the world. And Paul is saying that this was just who we were. We were dead in trespasses and sins. In fact, he says we were... Um, we lived to satisfy the body and uh, the body desires. Uh, we were children of wrath, just like every other unbeliever. In other words, the wrath of God abided on us. We were ripe for judgment. But verse 4, he said, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And all Paul is saying is, look, religion is man's efforts to work hard and reach God. Work real hard, do good things, uh, live a good life, a moral life, try to help people who are poor, and so on. And if you do enough good things, you can ascend to God. The Bible says nobody's ever ascended to God, no matter how good they were on a human level. Jesus Christ came down from heaven, lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died for our sins. And now once we give our lives to him, we are given salvation as a free gift. That's what it means. By grace you are saved. Grace means a gift. We don't earn a gift. We receive a gift. All right? We just accept Christ. And we are born again, connected to God and so on. But listen to me. Even after we are saved, even after we are saved by grace, we can still live lives at times of hypocrisy by putting more emphasis on externals and how we look outwardly to those we come in contact with. And who do we want to look the most holy to each other, don't we? When people come to church, it's amazing the transformation that takes place between the car and the sanctuary. Amazing. No revival could, could uh, you know, I mean, it, wow. I mean, you, you could have husbands and wives fighting like cats and dogs on the way to church. As soon as they hit the church parking lot, the clouds part, the angels start to sing, <laughs> light comes down from heaven, and they walk into this place transformed. It's a beautiful thing to see. I've enjoyed that every week. But see, God knows the heart, doesn't he? Okay? Well, we can put it on the facade, but God looks at the heart. And he knows if our, in our hearts, none of us are perfect. God is not demanding perfection, but he wants truth in the inward parts. He wants sincerity. It's one thing to say, Lord, I am imperfect, but I love you, and I want to live for you. I don't want to do these things anymore, Lord. And God looks down on that contrite heart and says, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear you confess to me that there are things that you're involved in that you, you hate, and only I can give you the grace to overcome. God's ears are attentive to the cry of the humble, but he resists the proud. So he's not looking for perfection. He's looking for sincerity, honesty, truth, and so on. Yet we come to church and put the facade on. God says, no, no, say that I won't tolerate that's hypocrisy in the highest form. I won't tolerate that. But, you know, as Christians, we can all play the part. We're all very good at putting on the facade. 
In fact, author and pastor James Montgomery Boyce weighs in on how these verses, verses 25 to 28, can be applied to those in the church today. Okay, uh, Let me just read what he said to you. He said, and I quote, The obvious application of this is to the concern that most church-going people seem to have for keeping up appearances. As long as we go to church, talk nicely, give a bit of our money to charitable causes, and do our civic duty, it does not seem to matter much whether we are dishonest in business, covetous in money matters, cruel in our dealings with our families, selfish, proud, or arrogant. We may even say, what I do in my own private life does not matter. It's nobody's business but my own. Well, Jesus did not think this way. On the contrary, he said, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then it will overflow and cleanse the outside also. End quote. And once again, the words that God spoke to Samuel the prophet are very relevant when he said, Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And God is always looking at our heart. It's not about how many times we go to church. It's about, you know, is God in our heart? Because if God's got a hold of our heart, he's got a hold of our life. Well, that brings us then to the eighth and final woe that Jesus pronounces in this chapter. Uh, I'll tell you this, guys, this eighth woe is the climax and the strongest pronouncement of guilt of them all, carrying with it the greatest sentence of judgment, a judgment that transcends the scribes and Pharisees and encompass the entire nation. Because you have to understand something. Yes, the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests were the ringleaders that rejected Jesus and tried to stir up the crowds to reject him as well. Of course, most of them uh, by this time had rejected him. You have to understand. They were taught when Messiah comes, he was going to lead them in a revolt against Rome, overthrow the yoke of Roman oppression, establish a glorious kingdom on the earth where he, will re where he would reign from Jerusalem visibly, and all the Jews would be his prime ministers. This utopian environment, this kingdom age, would be a time when there'd be no more wars, uh, a time when they wouldn't have to work because the Messiah would provide all their needs, all their food, all their health care. Uh, <laughs> All kinds of stuff like that. And, uh, okay, so, you know, and that's what they were looking for. Well, initially, when Jesus showed up on the scene and he was doing miracles like the Old Testament prophesied Messiah would do, they got excited. There was kingdom fever going on. The Messiah, Messiah was here, and they were waiting for him at any moment to lead them in this revolt against Rome and get going with the kingdom. But then after a while, he starts talking about loving your enemies, you know, I'm going away soon. Uh, and so they began to write him off as being not the real Messiah. In fact, John the Baptist even got caught up in this and from prison sent a few of his disciples to Jesus saying, look, are you really the Messiah or should we look for another? And Jesus said, you go tell John, I'm doing the works of the Messiah. Don't be offended because of me, John. Okay, I'm the Messiah. I'm not doing things the way you thought I would do it but I'm the Messiah. And so the nation, for the most part, had also rejected Jesus. And so this judgment that was coming was not just upon the scribes and Pharisees, chief priests, Sadducees, or in other words, the religious leaders by themselves. It was a judgment that was coming upon the entire nation. Let's read this eighth woe, starting in verse 29, where Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, 
If we had lived in those days, the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, Jesus said, you are witnesses against yourselves, that you are sons of those wicked people is the idea, who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now in this section, Jesus gives what has to be the greatest example of the hypocrisy of these so-called religious men. The scribes and Pharisees pretended to honor the Old Testament prophets by repairing their tombs and putting wreaths on their monuments. On the anniversaries of the, of the deaths of these prophets of old, the scribes and Pharisees gave very moving, stirring memorial speeches. They denounced their forefathers for being so spiritually blind so as not to recognize the prophets that God had sent to the nation, but instead murdered them. Scribes and Pharisees separated and even vindicated themselves from the wickedness of their forefathers vowing that if we had been alive at that time, we would never have been so blind and wicked to have killed God's prophets. Jesus said, boy, keep talking. Keep talking, man. You are really laying up judgment for yourself. By your words you shall be justified, he had said earlier, by your words you shall be condemned. He said, therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those, truly the sons of those who murdered the prophet. By calling them sons, Jesus was saying the same characteristics that their forefathers possessed that caused them to kill God's prophets in the Old Testament. Well, these characteristics had been produced in the scribes and Pharisees demonstrating that, you know, they were really, truly the sons of these wicked men. You see, Jesus knew that even as these men were decorating the tombs of the prophets of old, they were at that moment's moment plotting the death of the greatest prophet that God had ever sent the nation, in fact, had ever sent the world, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. I mean, the hypocrisy is breathtaking. Here they were, you know, absolutely, you know, categorically saying, well, our forefathers, you know, they weren't too bright, all right? They were, you know, they weren't really right with God because they were blind. If we had been alive at that time, we would never have been so blind and wicked to have killed God's prophets. Jesus said, you hypocrites. You give these lengthy speeches at these memorial services for the, for the dead prophets that your forefathers killed, and here you are plotting my death, the greatest prophet, whoever came to give you the word of God, the very son of God who is in your midst. I think it's amazing that it seemed the only prophets the scribes and Pharisees really did like were dead prophets. Those men who couldn't challenge them anymore or speak truth into their lives, you know? It's easy to celebrate a dead prophet, isn't it? One you don't have to deal with, one you don't have to listen to. Here was a living spokesman for the Father, and they couldn't handle it. That's why I'm convinced a lot of people love dead churches, because dead churches have dead pulpits, dead pastors who don't challenge anybody. They placate. You know, they tell people what they want to hear. But if you are at a church where the Word of God is being taught and people are being challenged from what God has said in His Word, we, we don't want to tell people what they want to hear. We want to tell them what they need to hear. That steps on toes. Now, that's a good thing. Because if you get your toes stepped on, well, either you're going to get angry and leave the church or you're going to get convicted and get right with God. Either way, something is going on. And so the Lord then added in verse 32, He said, fill up then... The measure of your father's guilt, serpents, brood of vipers, 
How can you? I mean, you're so far gone. You've hardened your heart so much. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? The Jewish patriarchs had filled the cup of God's wrath partway by killing the Old Testament prophets. And now the scribes and Pharisees would soon fill the cup of God's wrath, his judgment to the very brim by killing the Lord Jesus and his disciples. Look, I want you to understand something. In the scriptures, God's judgment never comes quickly upon a person, a nation, or even the world. But is always seen as a cup that is being slowly filled. And I'm talking about years, decades, sometimes even centuries, where God, like with the nation of Israel, was sending prophet after prophet to call them to repentance. And they would beat the prophets. They would martyr the prophets. And all the while they kept sinning. They kept in their rebellion, their idolatry, and the cup kept getting fuller and fuller. God is very patient. God is not a hothead. His default setting is to show mercy. He will have to judge eventually, but he doesn't want to do that. And eventually, though, if a person or a people keeps rejecting God's grace, God's mercy, and keeps living in rebellion, finally that cup is going to be full. And then God pours it out upon those people, full strength, in the form of judgment. Now, there is an ultimate judgment coming upon this world that goes along the very lines we're talking about. In fact, I'll read it to you. Turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. Just to give you an example of this whole cup of God's wrath being poured out, this is, the tri- this is the judgment coming upon the whole world during the tribulation period. In Revelation 14, we pick it up in verse 6. Then John said, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and springs of water. In other words, even though judgment is about ready to be poured out, God is giving the people of this world one more chance. He is saying through a, an angelic messenger, look, the cup of God's indignation is full. Now before he pours it out on you in judgment, he wants to give you one more opportunity. Our God's very gracious. To repent of your sins. Will anybody repent? I hope so. I don't know. I hope so. Verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, that would be the Antichrist, in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever received the mark of his name. So, so at the end of chapter 13, the Antichrist now issues a mark. It's like a, uh, uh, like a designer label on a pair of pants or something, we would think of it. Why do people wear designer clothes? Because they, they always have a little insignia or something, don't they? Why do people want to wear designer clothes? Well, because they look cool, and I want to be associated or identified with the designer. Well, the Antichrist is going to present a mark to the world. All those who want to associate with him, be loyal to him, identify with him, are to take the mark. Now, those that do not will be killed. And millions, of course, won't because they'll be believers. But God is saying, look, 
if you take that mark, there's no more hope. You cannot be saved. So before anyone takes the mark, I'm going to send my angel out to pronounce the gospel one more time. Because I don't want to see you go to hell forever. I, I don't want to see you be punished forever for your sins. My son died for your sins. There's no reason for you to die. There's no reason for you to spend eternity in hell. I don't want that. And God is trying to reason with the people of the world. How many people will respond? I don't know. That's coming in the future. I don't know. It just tells us that God is a good God who doesn't want to see people go to hell. He doesn't want to bring judgment. He's always trying to get us to reason. Come, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. But sometimes a person or a people have hardened their hearts so much that there is no more hope. There's no going back now. Verse 34 of Matthew 23 begins with the word what? Therefore. Therefore. Which ties what has gone before with the statements of Jesus that follow. The final woe stated by Jesus in verses 29 to 33 is primarily in view. But listen. Primarily but not exclusively because really the whole chapter, the whole chapter, has been an indictment against the scribes and the Pharisees leading up to the pronouncement of coming judgment upon not only them, but upon the whole nation. Verse 34, Jesus said, Therefore, indeed I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Now, this of course happened not long after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended back to his father, the Spirit of God was poured out and the church was born in Acts chapter 2. For a while, God gave them a grace period and uh, no persecution arose while the church was born and got established a little bit. That didn't last real long, though, before the disciples began to be hunted down, disciples of Jesus began to be hunted down, persecuted, and then martyred for their testimony. Of course, Saul of Tarsus spearheaded much of the persecution against the Christians early in the book of Acts before he himself got converted and became the target of a lot of the persecution himself. But you don't have to turn there, but we read in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, Now Saul was consenting of Stephen's death. Remember in chapter 7, Stephen had been put on trial by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. And um, they declared him guilty. They didn't like what he had to say. I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. And he only recounted their history, their history of rebellion. He ended the sermon with, you stiff-necked and rebellious. You do always those things that, you know, displease the Father. You always rebel against the Holy Spirit. They didn't like that, okay? So it says they, they, they gnashed on him with their teeth, you know. They didn't run up and start chewing on him. They just, they were so angry that they rushed him, dragged him outside, and stoned him. Now Saul, at this time, was a young Pharisee. He was on that supreme council, and he cast his vote for Stephen's death. But when he did, something happened to Saul. I mean, he became like he was possessed. He became a madman, all right? And uh, verse 1, now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who remained there in Jerusalem. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. The Greek implies he became like a madman. Uh, entering houses, dragging men and women out of their houses to commit them to prison. He was on his way to Damascus in chapter 9 
because he heard about some Christians up there. He was going to get them, arrest them, and bring them back when the Lord Jesus Christ met him, changed his whole life. Uh, and Saul became Paul, the apostle, a great defender of the faith. Again, in verse 34, Jesus said, Indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you're going to kill, crucify. Some of them you're going to scourge in your synagogues, persecute from city to city. Verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, what, what Jesus is indicting these men for, he's saying, look, your fathers are, are responsible for killing all the righteous people God has brought to this nation, even before the nation. Your forefathers were involved in, first of all, the killing of Abel, the first righteous man killed on the earth, killed by his brother Cain. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because Abel listened to what God said, brought the proper sacrifices. God received Abel, but Cain said, I'm going to do what I want to do. God doesn't like it too bad. I mean, I'm going to bring what I think he should like. And God rejected Cain. Cain was upset. He pouted. God said, look, if you do what's right, I'll accept you. But Cain didn't want to do what was right. He wanted to be rebellious. So what does he do? He takes his anger out on his brother Abel and kills him. That became the first of a long line of righteous men and women that unbelievers persecuted and killed all because they didn't want their, their righteous life was an indictment against these wicked people. You know, when you go out living in this dark world as lights, let me ask you, does the world applaud you? They persecute you because your life stands as a rebuke to their rebellious lives. And so from Abel, he was murdered as recorded in Genesis chapter 4. He was the first to the last prophet killed in the Old Testament period, which was Zechariah, who was murdered, uh, as recorded in 2 Chronicles 24, verse 21. And you have to understand something. In the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures start with Genesis and end with 2 Chronicles. That's where their scriptures end. So from Genesis to the end of their scriptures, we have all these righteous people killed from Abel to Zechariah, in other words, from A to Z. Okay, from A to Z. Their forefathers killed the prophets God sent to them. And now the scribes, Pharisees, and chief priests would kill their own Messiah and his disciples, filling up the cup of God's judgment upon the nation, upon the nation, not just his religious leaders. Verse 36, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, a generation in the Bible is roughly 40 years. And of course, true to his word, true as Jesus predicted, 38 years later, so within that one generation, 38 years later, God's judgment fell upon the nation as the Roman army surrounded the city and they destroyed the city, the temple. They killed 1,600,000 Jews. The Jews were scattered. Israel ceased to exist as a nation. The nation was judged. The nation was judged. You know, Jesus of course, saw this coming. You remember how that three days earlier, we're in chapter 23, three days earlier was Sunday. It was Sunday. In fact, it was Palm Sunday. Something significant happened on Palm Sunday. I want you to turn to Luke 19. Now, you have to see the scene in your mind's eye. The only time in his entire ministry that Jesus accepted worship as Messiah was right here on Palm Sunday, as Luke records in chapter 19 of his gospel. You remember how 
not only did Jesus accept worship, he orchestrated the events that led up to his being worshipped. Very special day. He goes out and tells his disciples to get a donkey and its colt. He sits on the donkey. And as he's walking up now, the donkey is riding up the Mount of Olives. His disciples are lying in the streets. They're going crazy. They think, here we go. Here's the kingdom. He's going to bring the kingdom in. I mean, they're going crazy. They're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, so on and so forth, right? They're laying palm branches in the road. They're throwing their cloaks uh, in the road in front of these donkeys. Because in their minds, he is going to ride into Jerusalem, proclaim himself king, bring the kingdom age. Well, he eventually does ride into Jerusalem, but he's rejected. But as he rides up to the top of the Mount of Olives, now, if you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem, where it's looking down slightly on the city and you see the Dome of the Rock and other things, that is taken from the top of the Mount of Olives, which looks down slightly on the city. And as Jesus comes to the top of the Mount of Olives, his disciples are cheering. They're going crazy with excitement. The kingdom is coming. What does Jesus do? He starts weeping because he knows he's not going to be bringing the kingdom. Why? Because the nation has rejected him as king. And so Luke records in verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's talking about the Romans surrounding the city in 70 AD. 38 years from this very moment. The time of their visitation is a reference to the prophecy in the book of Daniel chapter 9. A prophecy that predicted the very day Messiah would present himself to the nation. And that day would be April 6, 32 AD, Palm Sunday. Now I'm not going to get into that prophecy right now because in Matthew 24, Jesus alludes to it. We'll, talk, we'll leave it for that for at that time. But I just want you to know that Matthew 19... Verses 41 to 44 are recording Palm Sunday's events when Jesus is being hailed by his disciples as Messiah but rejected by the nation and its leadership. Now, of course, he knew this was going to happen all throughout his ministry. In fact, as we wrap this up, I just have to kind of set this up a little bit. Just turn to Matthew 16 briefly. Because earlier in Matthew 16, uh, in verses 1 to 3, we read, then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, you know, what more did he need to do? He did so many miracles by this point. John said, I can't even, I can't even record them all. There's too many. But these guys were always, unbelief is always looking for a little more proof. If you don't want to believe, you know, no matter how many miracles God does, you're not going to believe. So they came to him once again and said, show us a sign from heaven that we can be sure you're Messiah. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, when we studied that passage, we said that this corresponds to an old saying that you no doubt have heard. It's an old sailor proverb. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. 
red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. A little thing they come up with because, of course, years being on the sea, they understand that in the, at night when the sun sets, if it's a beautiful red sky, it indicates tomorrow is going to be fair weather, clear skies, good sailing. If in the morning, though, the skies become very red and threatening, they say, well, there's a storm brewing. And apparently the scribes and Pharisees were, you know, they knew this pro- proverb, okay. And so he quotes it to them directly, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, it says, that, it says to them, you can, you can tell what kind of weather is coming by the signs in the sky, but you are blind to the signs of the times that tell of the Messiah's coming. What signs? Well, the signs of his first coming. Guys, there were over 300 prophecies that predicted and pointed to Jesus' first coming. I mean, God did not leave them in darkness, all right? He didn't leave them in darkness. He told them many things that were going to happen that would indicate his first coming, the Messiah's coming, was near. But they were blind. They were ignorant. And guess what? There are over 500, 500 prophecies that deal with his second coming. And this generation, guys, is just as ignorant to Jesus' second coming as the Jews were to his first coming. Most people are going to be caught off guard when the rapture happens. Why? Because they don't know. They don't study the Bible. They don't know prophecy. A lot of churches have stopped teaching prophecy. A lot of churches don't teach the rapture anymore. It's all about cleaning up the earth right now. It's all about bringing the kingdom on earth through our religious, or excuse me, through our political, you know, process and electing uh, men and women to office or our Christians and so on. That's how we're going to bring the kingdom. Um, kingdom is coming when Jesus the King comes to bring it. Everyone in this room who is a Christian, we feel it in our hearts that Jesus' return for his church is coming very soon. Look, there are no signs that point to the rapture. The rapture is imminent. It could happen at any time. But there is over 500 signs that point to a second coming. And I believe the rapture takes place seven years before the second coming of Christ. And if the signs of Jesus' second coming are everywhere, that means the rapture is getting very close. And that's why Paul the Apostle said, look, it's high time to awaken out of sleep. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Jesus said, when you see all these things come to pass, look up. Your redemption is getting very close. So as we see the signs of his coming, like John the Apostle, I know I have, and I'm sure you have too, we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are living, guys, in very exciting times. Keep looking up. Your salvation draws near. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your promises, for your prophecies, Lord. You have not left your people in darkness that these things should overtake us like a thief. And Lord, those of us who have taken the time to study your word and to study prophecy, we are not asleep. We are awake. Our eyes are wide open. We see what's going on around us. And Lord, we know it's all pointing to the nearness of your soon return. Lord, what we, whatever time we have left, pour extra grace, strength, and anointing upon your people that we can stand up without fear and with boldness in proclaiming, Lord, Lord, your coming is soon, that the people of this world, Lord, even if they persecute us, so be it, but hopefully many will turn and be saved. So give us grace, Lord, to be faithful to the end and to finish our race strong for your glory. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.